Dear Heavenly Father, what a rich joy it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Mm. It's like the oil that runs down Aaron's beard. Mm. What a wonderful privilege it has been these last few days to minister alongside my son. And I, I pray now that you will give him a double portion of your spirit. Lord, we thank you that this wonderful message lifts up Jesus and lays our glory in the dust. We want to remember that. I think probably Sean and his wife had a tough night with a little baby. So um, be very close to him, I pray now. And thank you so much for a wonderful, precious Savior you've given to us. May his name be glorified now. And may we see what you have in store for us that is abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could add another verse to give me Jesus and change the last verse? Verse 4, give me rest. Well, I, I wasn't thinking that direction, but thank you for thinking for me, Cynthia. But it says, oh, when I come to die. Why is death inevitable, friends? Why is death inevitable? No, I'm asking. It doesn't have to be inevitable, does it? It doesn't have to be inevitable. So instead of, oh, when I come to die, that's a good point. We have to die to self, don't we? But if I come to die... And then we add a next verse. Oh, when Jesus comes again, or when he comes again, give me Jesus. On another note, it's always good to be the preacher because you can make people sing another song, can't you? (laughs) We're going to flip over the page to the very next song, Nothing Between, because it speaks exactly to the message this morning. Nothing Between. Can we sing this again? Yeah, please. Please, please. Come on up, brother. Want to lead us in that? Page 47. 47, nothing between my soul and the Savior. No hymn writer is absolutely inerrant in the way they write because it just makes us realize that we're all feeble. Nothing could ever prevent God from giving us his favor, even if there's anything in between us. I'm so glad that he sheds his grace and his favor down upon us regardless of what we do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Some of the words in this chorus remind me of my son. Because I'm sure every parent knows and has experienced this before. Your little child does something wrong and what do they do? They run away. Right? That's what Adam and Eve did, wasn't it? And it said they hid from the presence of the Lord. In Hebrew, the word presence means face. It's the same thing. And, uh, of course, the book of Isaiah says that our sins have hidden his face from us. So my little son, two and a half years old almost, he'll do something wrong and you'll try to go finding him. And inevitably, when you go and you find him, he's there in the corner and he's doing this. You'll walk right into the room and he's, he's there even facing you and he's doing this. He thinks he's hiding from you when he is just trying not to see your face is what it is. That's what sin does, friends. That's what sin does. It hides God's face from us not because he's trying to hide from us but because we cannot stand to be in the presence of a holy and loving and merciful and gracious God without being, as Lorraine said last night, without being consumed by it. So God in his mercy does hide his face from us. At the same time that he's hiding his face from us in his mercy, we don't even want to look right into it. And so we have to put a veil over our faces so that we do not have to look into the face of that holy God. But you know, God wants to make it so that there's nothing between our soul, and our Savior's. This morning we want to look for a few minutes at 
that idea and how, by God's grace, that can happen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you never, ever, ever stop shedding your favor upon us. We are told by your Son that you send the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You send your Son on the just and the unjust, the sinners and the saints. If you were to remove your favor from any one of us, even for one second, it would be lights out. So we are grateful that that you shed your favor upon us, but we are also looking forward to the day very soon when there will literally be nothing between us and our Savior. We pray that you would continue to bring that to a completion in our lives. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yesterday after the church service, I was standing in the back there and my dear precious wife Camille came in and I noticed that she had tears in her eyes. She was obviously very stirred about something. And if I was correct, I I was imagining it wasn't my sermon. It was something else that she had just found out. She was on Facebook yesterday morning and she discovered some tragic news. There was a, a young lady, probably 35 or so years old, who I actually went to the seminary with and was also at the same time that I was in the seminary, she was an assistant dean at the girls' dorm at Andrews together with Camille, my wife. And this this, uh, beautiful young woman, her name is Esperanza, she was just a wonderful girl. Well, after we graduated from seminary, she she, uh, unfortunately came down with cancer. I don't remember what type of cancer it was, but... Praise the Lord, she was able to beat it, and it was in remission. But on Friday afternoon, her life came to a tragic end in a car accident. And uh, it's just heartbreaking to think of such a story. You know, as I've been reflecting upon that a little bit, and the whole, she's now, she was now, uh, one of the head deans in the girls' dorm there at Andrews, so the whole campus, no doubt, is is being rocked by that. As I was thinking about that, I thought of this quotation that's actually the fourth one down in your handout. Anybody not have a handout that needs one? All right, let's get a few more here. Yeah. Raise your hands nice and high. Anybody else? Okay. There you go. There you go. Anybody else? Okay. You finished the work. Finish the work. <laughs> Get her done. We have a one more over here as well. more? All right. Notice this quotation. It's the fourth one down. This is from the book Education. Notice what Ellen White says. She says, those who think of the result of hastening or hindering the gospel think of it in relation to themselves and to the world. She doesn't say some people think of it who think of it. She says those, meaning there doesn't seem to be qualification as if she assumes all of us who think about this think about it in relation to themselves and to the world. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, and I think I've expressed the same sentiments, if only Jesus would come so that you know, I, I don't have to suffer from my illnesses anymore. If only Jesus would come 
so that this world of misery can be put behind us. But notice what she says. Few think of its relation to God. Wow. Few think of its relation to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal, and I might add every car accident that claims a life brings grief to him. I think there's, in my mind, perhaps two things that I've been hoping that we could understand this weekend. One is how much God loves us, how much God cares about us. The second thing I hope that could be accomplished is for you and I to be able to sympathize with God a little better. For us to understand his heart and to recognize how his heart aches and how he longs to be comforted as an omni-relational God. Open the Bibles, your Bibles this morning, to the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. As we bring this weekend to a a grand ending, as we talk about at-one-ment. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, and we start in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Mother, don't feel bad about taking her out if you need to. (laughs) Sorry. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by the what? Revelation. Notice we talked in my very first talk about how Paul is actually an apocalyptic writer. This word revelation, again, is the same word in Greek, apocalypsis. How by revelation, in verse 3, how by revelation he made known to me the, what does it say? The mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Verse 8, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Let's pause there for one second. Because what Paul is bringing out is that there has apparently been been this mystery that has been hidden since the beginning of time. There is something that has been going on that has not been able to clearly be seen by this world's inhabitants. As I said in my first talk, the idea of the great controversy is the belief and the understanding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that warms my heart and makes me be an Adventist more than anything else. You know, many, many Christians, they, they don't see the big picture. They don't see that there's this big picture going on. They don't see that there's something going on behind the scenes. Now, they may, many may have this general idea that there's this good power and there's this evil power and they may be at war with one another, but they don't see it all coming together. And 
And amazingly and beautifully, and I say this again humbly, we as this remnant church have been blessed and been given this message not because we're better than anybody, not because God loves us more, but because to whom much is given, much will be what? Required. So it's a privilege, but it's also a responsibility, as we're going to continue to discover. Verse 9 again, and to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, what? By the church. To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. What a thought, friends. That God has had this mystery that he's kept hidden from the beginning of time. He's been revealing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Till at the very end, he is trying to reveal that and trying to show his manifold wisdom by the church to the principalities and the powers in heavenly places. You know, the angels in heaven are looking on to see what will happen down here on earth. What will happen among God's people? You know, in Romans, Paul says that all creation awaits the revealing of the sons of God. They're waiting to see what can happen in the hearts of those who claim to be followers of Christ. The whole universe, in fact, is looking on. The whole universe is waiting to see what God's grace can do in your heart and my heart. Go with me now to the book of Colossians. Colossians. John, you know right where I'm going, brother, don't you? Amen. Colossians chapter 1. I'm so glad we're not at the top of the mountain yet, are we, John? Amen. We're climbing. Not As my dad used to tell me growing up, not at the top, but climbing. Amen. Notice what Paul says here. He brings out this word again, this word mystery, this word mystery. Colossians chapter 1, we're beginning verse 24. I now rejoice in my what? Sufferings. There's a thought we could pause beside for a while. Ellen White says that there is no greater gift for mankind than to fellowship with Christ and his sufferings. That's a, that's a startling thought. She's speaking about it in relation to John the Baptist when he was beheaded. She said, if we could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory for the, for the glory for which our sufferings have happened to us, I'm paraphrasing, we would choose the exact same thing that God has allowed to happen to us. Because there is no greater blessing than to fellowship with Christ and his sufferings, she says. So, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been what? Hidden from ages and from generations and but, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them... God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. What an amazing thought that God is going to reveal this mystery to the Gentiles and he's going to reveal it to the unfallen universe and that is Christ living in you, the hope of glory. You know, I could quote for you person after person who is not a Christian. Mahatma Gandhi said, I will be a Christian when I see a Christian. I love your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christ are so much, your Christians are so much unlike your Christ. People are waiting to see what Christ's grace can do in our hearts and in our lives and whether he truly is worth following. That is what Paul says. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Friends, can God's, is God's love and his grace powerful enough to compel us and to constrain us to ha allow nothing to be between us and our Savior? 
Is God's grace and his love powerful enough to constrain us to have nothing between us and the person sitting next to us? Notice this quotation. There's a whole lot of these that we're going to look at here this morning. But notice this quotation from the pen of Ellen White. The grace of Christ must mold the, what? Entire being. And its triumph will not be complete. Isn't that amazing thought that God's grace hasn't reached its triumph yet? And we think, well, God's grace is perfect. It's complete. It's full. But she says, no, no, no. It's not full. It hasn't triumphed yet. It will not be complete until the heavenly universe shall witness habitual tenderness of feeling, Christ-like love, and holy deeds in the deportment of the children of God. You know, I've, I've actually sat in this room as I was a camper here, I'm not a camper, a staff member, and we've had Sabbath school discussions, actually blind camp. I'm not trying to call out our visually impaired brothers and sisters, but it just comes to my mind. We've come here and we've talked about Sabbath school, and it's not the only place I've heard this uh, sentiment expressed. But people have this idea that we can love somebody without liking them. Have you ever heard this idea? I can love this person, but I don't. Ha- I can love this person, but I don't have to like them. What does Ellen White say here? Heavenly universe shall witness habitual tenderness of feeling. Does that sound like? Something you're doing where you're sticking up your nose and saying, you know, I'm just, or you're blocking your nose and you're saying, I'm going to love you, but I'm not going to like you. She says, tenderness of feeling. Tenderness, affection. Tenderness of feeling. Christ-like love and holy deeds in the department of children. You know what God has given us, he's blessed us with, in order to accomplish this very work, he has given us the day of atonement. He has blessed us with the day of atonement. Let's go back to the book of Leviticus because that's where we find a, a picture into this awesome day which, is, which uh, in another week is the 167th anniversary of 1844. Last weekend was the Jewish Day of Atonement as they celebrated it yearly. But we know that the anniversary of when Christ went into the most holy place 167 years ago is coming up next Sabbath. Notice what what, uh, Moses records in Leviticus chapter 16, and we read in verse 29, This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. You know, the beautiful message, the beautiful picture of the Day of Atonement is a message that gives us cohesiveness to all sorts of doctrines that we have. Matter of fact, Ellen White says that the sanctuary is a complete system of truth. It brings all these divergent, uh, seemingly divergent doctrines and brings them together to help us understand this great controversy and the plan of salvation. So in that sanctuary service, we see what Christ is trying to accomplish. And he is doing, going about a work of atonement right now. Now, that word atonement, as if you saw the title of the talk, you can see that it's one of those words that if you were to break it down, it literally means what it says in English. And that is at-one-ment. This is what God is trying to accomplish. This is what he's trying to do in our hearts and in our lives and in our church and in our families and all across the world. He is trying to accomplish at-one-ment. He is trying to accomplish an experience for us where we are at-one with him and we are at-one with one another. John 17, that they might be one as, Father, you and I are one. That's what he's trying to do in our lives and in our hearts so that God's thoughts are our thoughts. His ways are our ways. His grace is our grace. His faith is our faith. 
That's what he's been trying to do. That's what this mystery has been all about, is through the ages he has been trying to manifest himself in his people. Now, the Hebrew word for atonement, it's not the exact same idea, but you no doubt know the Hebrew word. It's kippur, yom kippur, the day of atonement. That word in Hebrew, the original meaning was to remove, to cleanse, to purge, or to take away. Isn't that what needs to happen in order for two people to become one? They have to have the wall taken away between the two of them? If you're like me, you've noticed that there have been times in your life where if there's a little bit of tension between you and another person, you sense it. You know? Maybe you got mad at somebody, you got mad at your spouse, you whatever. And you notice that there's a little bit of uneasiness around that person. It's like there's a, a giant gorilla in the room when you're <laughs> when you're around them. You just know, even when, when you've supposedly kissed and made up, you've supposedly forgiven, forget, there's still this little tension because cause trust and confidence has been violated. You know, that's the same way with God. That's why we put, like Camden, our hands on our faces. Because we don't want to see God when we know that we have gone against him. And he says, right now, I'm trying to remove those hands from your faces. I'm trying to purge what's standing between you and me so that we can have complete and full fellowship. You know, there are many Christians, most Christians, believe that the atonement finished at the cross. You can see, just based upon the word at-one-ment, the silliness of that idea. Because at the cross, Christ finished his work of atonement. He finished it at the cross, and then he went into the most holy place, I should say. He finished the sacrifice for the atonement. But then he started working on our behalf. He started working over time, kept on going, trying to finish that work and bring it to completion where he and us can be completely one. You know, the day of atonement does not finish when Jesus comes again. You know that? The atonement will keep on going for the thousand years, won't it? As the whole universe finally becomes reconciled to the ways of God and says, you know what, he's right. He's right. He was love all along. He was full of faith all along. So this work of atonement does not finish at the, did not finish at the cross. It's a continual process where God is trying to reconcile us fully to himself and subsequently fully to one another. Notice the next quotation. Again, we have a lot of quotations to cover. The church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. Let me read that again. The church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. Friends, what we're trying to accomplish as a church is to tell the beautiful news of our at one with God and to also tell others that God is inviting them to be at one with Him. Amen. We're saying we're point, looking to Jesus, look to God. The Savior of the world, the, the God of the universe, wants to be at one with you. He wants to have intimacy with you. He wants to have such intimacy with you that there's nothing between you and Him. Amen. And I wish Cliff was able to share his little presentation with us. Because what, what he's wanting people to recognize is that it's not that God needs to be appeased. It's not that God needs some type of convincing to love us. It's that our hearts, our minds have been distant from him. So God is not the one who needs to be convinced of our worthiness. We are the ones who need to be con convinced of God's worthiness. So we tell the whole world that God wants this fellowship. He wants this intimacy. He wants this relationship with us. So the church has been appointed for the salvation of men. It was organized for what? Service. And its mission is to carry the gospel to the world. From the beginning, it has been God's plan that through his church shall be reflected to the world his fullness and his sufficiency. 
the members of the church, those whom he has called out of darkness into his marvelous light, are to show forth his glory. The church is the repository of the riches of the grace of Christ, and through the church will eventually be made manifest, even to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the final and full display of the love of God. I don't, I don't want to put down any other, any other work that we do, but she doesn't say through the church will be displayed the final and full revelation of the health message. She doesn't say the, the church will reveal the final and full display of, of, of dress reform. Now, d- please don't misunderstand me, because these things have their place, and they are important. They are very important. But they are only important insofar as they make us more loving. That is the goal of the health message. That is the goal of dress reform. That is the goal of of media standards. Whatever it is, it is to make us more loving. Let's not put the cart before the horse. Now sometimes we need to step out in faith when we don't see exactly how it all makes sense. And God invites us to simply trust that he has our best interests in mind. But these, these messages, these facets of this whole plan are for the purpose of making us more loving. And we can find some very, very well-meaning brothers and sisters who eat right, dress right, you name it, but they're the most miserable people in the world. What does it say? The final and full display of the love of God. Notice this quotation now from E.J. Wagner. This is from January 9, 1896. God is now accused by Satan of injustice and indifference, and even of cruelty. Thousands have echoed the charge, but the judgment will declare the righteousness of God. His character, as well as that of man, is on what? Trial. In the judgment, every act, both of God and man, that has been done since creation will be seen by all in all its bearings. And when everything is seen in that perfect light, God will be acquitted of all wrongdoing, even by his enemies. Isn't that a beautiful goal towards which we can walk together as believers in him, as ones who can take up the cross? and proclaim that God is good and that he is love and that he is faithful and that he is forgiving. That's what God is trying to accomplish in your heart and mind. We have, however, talked a little bit about what it means to love God this weekend. And as my dad said yesterday, don't worry about loving God, just love people. Just love people. So what God is trying to do among us, is trying to bring about a unity of like-minded followers of him. And um, he's trying to remove those walls of separation between us so that we can say nothing between not only my soul and my Savior, but nothing between my soul and your soul. Nothing between my mind and your mind. Nothing between my heart and your heart. I came across this quotation, and again, I've been giving you a steady diet of quotations here from Ellen White, but I came across this one a couple years ago. This is actually written in December 16, 1884, and it was written as she was reflecting upon the Chinese New Year. It's interesting. She she actually talks about the Chinese New Year and some of the practices that they do in China for the New Year. And she said it would be well for us to learn a lesson from our brothers and sisters in China. She says, if we have but little time, let us improve that earnestly, that little earnestly. The Bible assures us that we are in the great day of what? Atonement. The typical day of atonement was a day when all Israel afflicted their souls before God, confessed their sins, and came before the Lord with contrition of soul, remorse for their sins, genuine repentance, and living faith in the atoning sacrifice. 
If there have been difficulties, brethren and sisters, if envy, malice, bitterness, evil surmisings have existed, confess these sins, not in a general way, but go to your brethren and sisters personally. Be definite. Now listen to this next one. This is the one that blew me away. If you have committed one wrong and they 20, confess that one as though you were the chief offender. Wow. Take them by the hand. Let your heart soften under the influence of the Spirit of God and say, will you forgive me? I have not felt right toward you. I want to make right every wrong that not may stand registered against me in the books of heaven. I must have a clean record. Who think you would withstand such a movement as this? There is too much coldness and indifference, too much of the I don't care spirit exercised among the professed followers of Christ. If you were to look up that word professed by Ellen White, you'd be startled. She talks a lot about professed Christians. These are the ones that say, Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. All should feel a care for one another, jealously guarding each other's interests. Love one another. Then we should stand a strong wall against Satan's devices. Amid opposition and persecution, we would not join the vindictive ones, not unite with the followers of the great rebel, whose special work is to accuse the brethren, to defame and cast stain upon their characters. Notice what she says now. Let the remnant of this year, the remaining of this year, be improved in destroying every fiber of the root of bitterness, burying them in the grave with the old year. Begin the new year with the more tender regard, with deeper love for every member of the Lord's family. Press together. United we stand. What? Divided we fall. Take a higher, nobler stand than you ever have before. I'm sure there's somebody that you could think of right now, well, you, you would, as you reflect, you would say, we're not at one. We're not one. We're at war. We're not one. We're at war. And then we step back from it and say, well, but wait a minute. They're to blame. You know how many times they've slandered my name? You know how many times they've yelled at me? You know how many times they've lied about me? You know how many times they've treated me disdainfully, they're the ones who need to come to me. They're the ones who need to apologize and to reconcile. You know, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar Go and be reconciled with him first. It doesn't say if you there remember that you have something against your brother. It says if you, there, if you remember that your brother has something against you. I, I weep at the thought of how I've sat beside, I've sat at the end of a table of church members and I've, I've just lovingly presented this verse to them. And the individuals have just sat there with their arms folded and said, I didn't do anything wrong. They have to come to me. They're the ones who, who have done something against me. And I said, what does it say here? And I, this, this, this verse doesn't apply to me. This verse does not apply to me. I don't see how it applies to me. You know, all of us, all of us can do whatever we can to justify our own pride and our refusal to humble ourselves at the foot of the cross and at the doorstep of our neighbor. All of us. But Jesus wants us to be one. He wants us to be unified because in so doing, it shows to the universe and to the, to the world around us, to the Gentiles, that God is worth following and he makes a difference. The Day of Atonement is able to accomplish this unity of heart and spirit among us. And it, it helps us when we understand that corporate concept, doesn't it? Helps us when we realize it's not us and them. 
It's not them. It's not they. It's all of us together. Go with me, of course, to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. This is the culmination of this mystery that we have been reading about. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no what? Longer. Amen. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful moment when it's declared that there should be no more delay? Time has gone off, gone on long enough. As we mentioned yesterday, the work will be cut short in righteousness. God will say enough. Enough! I've waited long enough! Verse 7, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be what? Finished. As he declared to his servants, the prophets. Friends, God is trying to finish that mystery. He's trying to bring it to a completion. He's trying to reveal it through us, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Say, well, Sean, how does that work? How does it happen? Do I make up my mind? Do I try harder? We know the answer. It's all about the Spirit of God writing God's character upon our hearts. It's all about him grabbing hold of us and us daily and moment by moment surrendering and dying to self and say, Lord, I can't do this. I consent for you to do the work. Our brother, Pastor Solomon, prayed that prayer. I don't know if you realize it was an Ellen White prayer, but yesterday at the end of the church service, that wonderful, wonderful thought from her, no outward observances can take the place of simple faith and entire renunciation of what? Self. But no man can empty himself of self. Can't do it. So if you thought you would go home and start trying today to empty yourself of self, I have some good news and bad news for you. Well, I have bad news and good news for you, actually. The bad news is you can't do it. The good news is you can't do it. But no man can empty himself of self. We can only consent for Christ to do the work. We can only consent for Christ to accomplish the work. Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. Friends, do you want the rich current? of God's love to flow through your soul. Like Dr. Neal said, like the rivers of water, just the rivers of life just flowing out of us can only happen as we consent to allow Christ to do the work for us. It can only happen as we daily feed upon the bread of life. It can only happen as we drink from those wells that have everlasting water. Let's finish with this quote. Last one. Last one. Notice this. We need to be reminded of this. The church of Christ, enfeebled, defective as she may, what? Appear. How often do we weep because it seems like nothing's going right? How often do we weep because, as pastors, we were just informed that we've baptized 
far fewer members in this conference than we have in a hundred years. The church of Christ, enfeebled, defective as she may appear, is the one object on earth upon which he bestows in a special love, in a special sense, his love and his regard. Notice this next line. Notice this. The church is the theater of his grace. Wow. The church is the theater of his grace. She gets that from the book of, what is it, 2 Corinthians? It seems to me, Paul says, that we apostles have been displayed as a theater, a spectacle for the whole world to see. The Greek word is theater. We have been displayed as a theater for the whole world to see. The church is a theater of his grace in which he delights in making experiments of mercy on human hearts. Amen. You see God up there, he's getting excited. He's, he's showing, he's telling, you know, Jesus is telling the Father or the other angels, hey, watch this, watch this. Watch what my grace and mercy can do in the heart of a human being. Amen. The Holy Spirit is his representative, and it works to effect transformation so wonderful that angels look upon them with astonishment and joy. Heaven is full of rejoicing when the members of the human family are seen to be full of compassion for one another, loving one another as Christ has loved them. Wow. Heaven is full of rejoicing. Friends, do you want to bring a little bit of joy to the hearts of the heavenly beings? Do you want to bring a little joy to the heart of God? I'd invite you to allow him to experiment upon your heart. Just let him experiment. Just let him try something. Just let him use you to be a repository of his grace and his love. I have to admit that too many times I have not I have not understood the corporate concept. My own ministry and my own family life, I have not understood that we're all in this together and it's not you, it's me. It's not you're the problem, get your act together. It's our problem, it's my problem. I have to admit that far too often I have been content with keeping people at arm's length and saying, you know what, I've done my part. I've tried hard enough. I've pursued them with reconciliation, but they've, they've spurned my attempts. It's on them now. The ball's in their court. I've often asked the question, how, how empty do you think our churches would be if we followed Matthew 5 literally and we said, I'm not going to show up until I can reconcile with that brother, that sister. That's what, that's what Jesus says. Leave your gift at the altar until and go be reconciled to your brother. Does that mean we make one attempt, we make two attempts? Now, we can't force the heart of somebody else. Don't get me wrong. But what would happen if we said, you know what? Unity and oneness are the most important thing that God could bless us with as a people because it shows his grace. And it shows that even though we come from different walks of life, even though we have different ideas, and when we talk about unity, it doesn't mean that we all have to agree on every single thing. It just means that I don't have any ill feelings towards you. I have no bitterness towards you. I'm not holding your sins against you because God knows if our sins were held against us, what would happen? Dead. So if God has given us such a blessed and unmerited gift, how could we not extend that same gift to other people? So what would it look like if we said, Lord, on your day of atonement, we want to stop thinking about ourselves. 
Start thinking about you and other people. That's what God's waiting to accomplish in my heart. And he's trying to remove the distractions, not because, not because he wants to remove distractions for its own sake, but because he wants to make me more loving. You know, I've been, I've been struggling recently a little bit. I've, I've been reflecting upon it. Uh, there's individuals in my life who I would say are a little more lax in their personal behavior. You know, it's nothing big. It's not like they're axe murderers and I'm this saint. But I'm just saying, you know, little things like what you listen to, what you listen to, what you watch on TV, so forth. And I've, I've looked at these individuals and I said, you know, could I honestly say that because I avoid these particular things and they participate in them, does that, has that made me a more loving person? Has that made me a more loving person? And I, I, I've, I've been able to come to the place of feeling comfortable because I know that I'm not supposed to compare myself to other people. And, you know, maybe the other individual could be a thousand times less loving or a thousand times more loving in their own experience if they gave those other things up. I don't know. But the, the point I'm making is, is Christ making us more loving? Or are we so focused on the avoidance of bad and the doing of good that we miss the forest for the trees? the fact that he's trying to finish this mystery in our hearts. I think it would be appropriate at this time to spend some precious moments in prayer. And um, I don't know how we should proceed with it other than to invite all of us to maybe spend a minute or two just praying silently.